Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast, conversations about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. On today's episode, Scott and I continue our series, A Time to Politic, within which we have been examining the politics of the New Testament, from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos. On today's episode, we continue by looking at the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. Scott, welcome back. How are you? Doing well. Good to see you. And uh, it's always good to talk about politics when one of us is in a different country. So it's it's not obsessed by one topic. And, yeah, of course. Uh, although my experience in Europe is the people were, were exp- are obsessed with American politics and uh, not with their own politics. I suppose they are when we're not around. But when we're around, they only want to talk about is Donald Trump. And, we uh, uh, we had a lot of that here in Canada too over the last few uh, years, yeah. so they're they're not alone. Hey, so uh, never we're jump- been never so been a candidate who gets both sides of the conversation all the time. I mean, the Democrats want to talk about Trump, and the Republicans want to talk about Trump. Although right now the the conservatives want to talk about Hunter Biden, but uh, this is the endless cycle of political candidacy and elections that I think have greatly disrupted American culture and society. Yeah, of course. And we're looking to the people north of the border to solve this problem for us. Of course, and we have all the answers and the solutions. Hey, well, we're jumping into Acts today. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this episode, you know, I've heard you say a few times that when you were working on translating the Second Testament, that translating through Acts was a, a meaningful experience for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, I've been a gospel person, synoptic person, most of my career uh, yeah. until I came to Northern. And I had never taught strictly, I had never taught, let's say, Paul the Apostle, uh, you know, a class like that. I had taught Galatians many times, Colossians many times. Uh, Philemon a little bit. So I had, I had worked with Pauline letters, uh, but I never taught that. So I worked on that quite a bit. Um, and for 10 years, now I'm back in the gospel studies. But um, when I was translating the book of Acts, I realized that the grammar, I mean, I knew this because I've played with it always you know I've, of course. I've looked at i i can't say that i had sat down i never had sat down and read and translated the whole new testament this way i have read the the greek new testament from cover to cover before just as my reading uh, of the bible but um uh when you start translating something you really have to start paying closer attention because people are going to look at it you know when you're translating for yourself or even for classes you can just say what you think and yes. correct it some other day if you think it needs correction. Yeah, well, when it's the Bible, you know, people have copies of it and uh, they don't want to buy a second one when they, you know. So so um, what I really enjoyed was the uh, explosion of vocabulary in the book mm. of Acts the greater sophistication of the syntax and grammar in the book of Acts. Um, and there's just a completely different feel. I mean, Josephus is better is better at Greek than, than Luke. But Luke is by far 
the best of the narrators of New Testament Greek. And so, and then I have uh, the second half of the book of Acts is, is a kind of a different challenge, maybe because we, we talk more about the first half. But um, I have had a habit for about five years. For everyone who tells me they're working the book of Acts, I ask them, have you ever translated the whole book of Acts? And I'm not kidding you. I've met PhD students. I've met professors. I've met professional grammarians. I've not met one person who's translated the whole book of Acts. Wow. I mean, Craig Keener has. I'm sure Ben sure. Riverington has. But I haven't, I haven't asked them that question. But I have asked others. And I would say to them, when you start encountering, especially that journey of Paul from Caesarea Maritima and north and then on the boat all the way to Rome, you're going to encounter language and vocabulary you're not going to find anywhere else. There are hundreds of words in the book of Acts that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. Yeah. So it's just, now I grew up, you probably didn't do that. You didn't use Bruce Metzger's lexical aids, did you? To for I did not. Okay. When when I was learning Greek, everybody, and they did this all the way through my years at Trinity, so I don't know when they quit doing this. Uh, Bruce Metzger had a book that was published, and it it was the vocabulary of the New Testament. Every word from the first group was 500 words and more. Yeah. And then it just went all the way down, you know, to 10 times and uh, 10 times it occurs. There are a lot of words in the book of Acts that don't show up in those lists. And we right. we grilled our students at Trinity on those vocabulary lists. They had to memorize these words. And it was, we uh, we gave quizzes every week on, on, on words. I'm sure the students loved you for that. Everybody at our at Trinity did this. How else are you going to learn if you don't know some of the words? So, all right, anyway, so... So, so that was the, the explosive nature of the syntax and the language. And then you wrote recently for the Everyday Bible series on the book of Acts. I heard you say somewhere that it was one of your favorite projects you've ever worked on. As someone who's worked on a project with you, I would say I find that moderately offensive, but we'll let that slide for today. Uh, <laughs> I said one of, my, one of my favorites. Yeah, no, I'm, well, I'm just, My favorite I'm, was working on Revelation with you. Yeah, of course. Unda <laughs> undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, so you wrote on Acts. And one of the things I wanted to do as we, as we started in this conversation about Acts and the politics of Acts is to just think about the general narrative frame of the book of Acts, that there is... Um, we have this missional movement that launches from the beginning, and then we have uh, we have this this movement outward as people are are being welcomed into these new ecclesia and these new these new communities. So we get this this apocalyptic experience of God, so to speak, um, with the with Pentecost, and then that extends sort of outward into the entirety of the world, and so those those politics, so to speak, uh, have their origin in God. Um, so I, I just wanted to start there, just the sort of narrative frame of where the emergence of uh, these communities that move outward come from on a sort of collision course with Rome coming out of the early parts of Acts. Yeah, and it's really important to see uh, is how you frame that. For instance, uh, it's been traditionally framed as a missionary 
movement in the sense of evangelism, going out and reaching people with the gospel. Mm. It was more complicated than that. Of course. And um, so you have, you have uh, let's just say that we got to set this a little bit of the agenda. You got in, in Rome, you have an emperor by the name of Nero, who by the time the book, you know, we, we had, we can't date the book of Acts with any kind of certainty. So, okay. Uh, what the, the events say, for instance, in Acts 17, which a text we're going to talk about mm-hmm. in Paul's in Thessaloniki, um, Nero is the governor, uh, is the emperor at that time that this text is purportedly talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Nero was a um, very insecure debauched if you believe the reports of say suetonius and tacitus uh debauched and uh power hungry uh continually seemingly on a downward spiral in his life who had amazing power and rome was a system if there ever was a system they sort of took the best ideas of the greeks and systematized them it's sort of like uh, a person who is a narrative biblical scholar uh, picked up by John Calvin and turned into a logical system. And that's what Rome did to, now I'm not equating Rome with Calvinism. <laughs> I just suddenly realized I, I'm not trying to say that. So d- don't bug me about it. Um, the, um, they systematized it. So when the, when the Christian mission moves out, it is a couple things. One, it can be like little associations in communities, very common to have guilds and associations that met together and ate together and celebrated things together and said prayers together, um, were, you know, respected and revered the emperor together, etc. You have that sort of thing going on. You also have uh, religions, which are not like modern-day Christianity. This is more of a, a ritual act rather than um, an all-day type thing. Mm. And then you have the synagogue. And the synagogue in the first century, whether it's in Galilee, Judea, or in Greece, I mean, Thessaloniki is in Macedonia. In Macedonia, if it's there, the Jewish synagogue is both a gathering place for Jews, but we shouldn't imagine it as a church, the way we think of churches. It was their uh, community center. And I really struggled with how to translate synagogue in the Gospels, and I ended up translating assembly hall, because um, it tended to have a rectangular shape, uh, or at least the room that mattered the most. And uh, it did have study centers connected to it, but we don't know as much about the first century synagogue as a lot of people like to think. But the synagogue was not simply a a religious uh, meeting. The synagogue was an assembly of the Jewish people who would have both political and religious. They would have social. They would have... um, educational interests. So think of a public 
community center, the way when I grew up, the African-American community in my hometown had a community center. And that's where the kids went. That's where they held meetings. That's where they had weddings. That's where, I mean, if, if they had a rally, if they wanted to do something about politics, this, everything happened there. So now, to all, all to say this, when Christians begin to influence local Jewish synagogues, they become a little suspicious, like, who is this group? And do the Jews who are tolerated as a religio licita, a, a legitimate religion, are they happy with this group? And sometimes right. they were and sometimes they weren't. And at the same time, then there was suspicion because they seem to be saying some things that are quite different and they'd have to be inspected. So by the time you get into the Pauline mission and places begin to see the impact of Paul's missionary presence in a community, you are beginning to see a religio-political-social-moral movement at work that was forming a new community within these cities that would have opinions about probably everything going on and not all of them positive. So, so we'll read, uh, sorry, go ahead. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So we'll read Acts 17 in a second. I think I just wanted us to give a little bit of a preamble to think yeah. about the ways in which, you know, as Kevin Rowe says, you know, in his book, World Upside Down, he wants to argue, you know, you know, like on the one hand, Luke is narrating a movement of Christian mission into the Gentile world. And it, it seems almost like it will be on a collision course with Rome, like the movement of the spirit sending out witnesses, Paul going to synagogues, uh, establishing these, uh, these new ecclesia, these new communities. It feels as though it, it will be, on a collision course with Rome. And in some sense it is. And yet on the other hand, uh, these new communities uh, are not in, the, in and of themselves competing with Rome or trying to take down Rome. Uh, they're, they're establishing sort of these alternative posts or, or communities or assembly halls altogether. Yeah. And so I just wanted to think together as we look at an instance of Paul going into a city, uh, yeah. what was yeah. really happening in the narrative frame of Acts. Yeah. I, and Kevin Rowe's book is extraordinary. Hmm. His two books, his three books, and he's got a couple little ones. Uh, they are, they're real, that is really an extraordinary book of uh, sort of a Hauerwasian. I don't think that's unfair to say, but I don't know what Kevin Rowe would think of that. A sort of a Hauerwasian approach to, uh, let's say, early Christian political thinking. Sure. So let's look at it then. Let's look at an instance, Acts yeah. 17. Uh, this is a famous instance of Paul going into uh, Thessalonica. It should help us illustrate. So I'll read the text out loud. Again, this week's episode is sponsored by the Second Testament. Acts chapter 17, <laughs> we'll read verses 1 to 9. And then we'll just, we'll chat through some of this together. I think it gives us some examples of the political nature of the book of Acts in and of itself. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Taking the path through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessaloniki, where there was a Udayan assembly hall, consistent with Paulos's custom. He entered with them, and on three Sabbaths, he deliberated with them from the writings, opening and presenting 
that it is necessary for the Christos to suffer and to be raised up from among the dead ones, and that this is the Christos, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you. Some of them were persuaded and were affixed to Paulos and Silas. So too did a great mass of Hellene or Greek reverers, as well as first women, not a few. The Eudians, being zealous and welcoming, some bad loitering men of the city squares, and making a crowd, were disturbing the city, and standing over the house of Yasson, uh, were pursuing them to lead them into the public. Not finding them, they were dragging Yason and some siblings before the Politarchs, more on that in a moment, bellowing out, quote, that these are anarchists, that's right, these are anarchists, those causing trouble to the inhabited world and are now present here, whom Yason has welcomed, all these practice against the Kaiser's decree, saying there's another emperor, that is Jesus. They agitated the crowd, and the Polytarchs, hearing these things, and taking adequate or bond from Yeson, and the remaining, they loosed them. And so this instance of Paul coming in uh, and doing a pretty typical practice. So Paul's first move, he enters into Thessaloniki, and he goes to the assembly hall, which you just mentioned to us a minute ago. And uh, there's some trouble that that emerges after this. I remember, you know, N.T. Wright loves to drop that line from a scholar right everywhere. St. Paul went, there was a riot and everywhere I go, they serve tea. You know, we have a little <laughs> bit of that happening here now. So talk to us about yeah. this, Scott. What should we see here? What's going on? What's the accusation yeah. that's being leveled? All right. The um, synagogue uh, obviously permitted someone like Paul, who was not from Thessaloniki. He's, mm -hmm. You know, this is Greek. And Paul is from Tarsus or from Jerusalem, depending on which uh, city he wanted to claim at the moment. Of course. Um, he gets there and he, uh, in the assembly hall of the Jews, he somehow gains platform and deliberates them from the writings, the graphi, which would be the scriptures, is often translated scriptures. Opening, opening up and talking about it, reading it and presenting uh, a Christocentric uh, message. Now, he didn't say um, uh, the four spiritual laws. <laughs> he, he didn't get into a theological debate about soteriology. Hmm. He didn't talk about justification from what we can see. He tried to convince this Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, was the Christos, was the, you know, we'd say Messiah, if you want to use the Jewish, a uh, transliteration of the Jewish term. And what he wanted them to know is that it was necessary for the Christos to suffer and to be raised from among the dead ones, and that this is the Christos, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you. Now, um, Paul uses his platform, his opportunity in the synagogue, uh, and he gets to do this for three consecutive weeks. Hmm. Paul was never um, succinct. Uh, he he didn't uh, give a 12-minute Episcopalian homily. <laughs> um, he probably went on for 
at least an hour, if not more, and there would have been questions and answers. And Paul could easily have just been sitting on one of the main benches in a synagogue. It wouldn't have been big. I mean, you can go to a synagogue in Masada if if you've ever been there. And um, and in uh, Magdala and in Capernaum, they're not big. Um, he's in this synagogue and he's sitting there and it's probably got three or four or five rows of seats behind him. He may be in the front row and they read, they read a text and Paul offers a comment. People come back and Paul offers a response and people come back and Paul offers. And before long, you realize like Donald Trump, he's taken over the he's taken over the scene. All of a sudden, you know, everybody's talking about what he has to say, and Paul is thrilled with this because he's already had so much practice in synagogues talking about this sort of thing. But his contention is that Jesus is the Messiah. This term is the center of the gospel for the Apostle Paul. Of course, uh, I remember one time when I was. Uh, it was before, I, I think it was before uh, King Jesus came out. I was sitting in my office at North Park University, and a student, some a reader, writes me and says, I'm reading the New Testament. And he said, there is a lot of stuff about Jesus being the Messiah. And he asked this question, what does Messiah have to do with the gospel? You know... I just groaned. You know what? I did not say this to him, obviously, but what I wanted to say was that's the problem yes. is that when you don't know that that is the gospel, then right. we are preaching a different gospel. We're preaching a gospel that I call in King Jesus a soterian gospel mm -hmm. rather than a King Jesus gospel. Paul preached a King Jesus gospel, and Christos means. A king, the anointed one of God, who is the king, and it would be Davidic, and it would be exalted, and it would be political, and it would be religious, and it would be hermeneutical. It would be all these things. It would be all that Jews understood their Messiah to be. Paul says that's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. Now I I do I do want to say that the hope and expectation of Jews in the first century well the, neither one of those were obsessed with Messiah. I mean some right. of them were all about the age to come, Olam Haba. So some of them were all about the kingdom of God. Some of them were about justice, some of them were about, you know, peace. Um and so the it did not hang the hope of ordinary Jews did not hang on one person coming, though they knew there would be a king and they knew God would be with that king and that king would lead them to peace, like Zechariah's song in in Luke chapter one, uh, the Benedictus. So um, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah is a way of saying that he's the king. Now this is politically dangerous in Thessaloniki right? because an assembly hall is a social, political, religious center. And in that center for three weeks, Paul is talking and people are talking about Paul. 
he's on he's on the news broadcast. He's on <laughs> CNN and he's on Fox News. Everybody's talking about Paul's theories that he's claiming that this Jesus from Galilee is the Messiah. Okay, so I think that that's pretty much what you're asking. Yeah. So the 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 accusation that's leveled against them is that they're anarchists who are proclaiming another lord or another king. Emperor, I translate that one. Yeah, emperor. Yeah, another another emperor. So I'm uh, so Paul is talk Paul's trying to persuade them about Jesus as the Christos. And it seems that in some sense then this causes a threat. Uh, some kind of, as I was trying to mention before, there, there's a destabilizing effect to the proclamation of Paul's gospel. It it threatens, in some sense, the the social political fabric. I mean, what's going on here that this becomes the accusation that they're leveling against them is that these are the, these are anarchists, those turning the world yeah. upside down, who are proclaiming another king. Yeah. Oh, I mean, this is the this is the whole thing, and this demonstrates without any question that the early Christians had a political. There's a political implication to what they're saying. Of course. And it is fascinating, isn't it, that they are hauled before the polytarchs. Yeah. Okay. But now the term that they use are anarchists. And this is a term that is an obsession for Josephus in his book called The Jewish War. Now, he uses various forms of stasis. This is the Greek sort of the root word for everything. This is anastasis. Right. Mm-hmm. This is Anastasis. Let's see. It's verse. Where is it? Verse six. Verse six. Yeah. Ana, yeah. It's going to be from Anastasis, Anahistomy. So this is sort of an intensification of uh, of disorderliness. Hmm. And so Josephus is always criticizing these these parties in Jerusalem who are anarchists they are disrupting order and not doing what they should be doing and so these are rebellious disruptive riotous people who are threatening the order of society that's who that's how they see them now they it might not be accurate okay it might not be accurate most political labels are not accurate sure of course but but they're also not that far off. Yes, there was, of there's something true in almost all political labels that give rise to exaggeration. So there is something about Jesus's, Paul's message about Jesus as the Messiah that is politically, didn't you say destabilizing? Yeah, yeah, that's Rose's yeah. word. There's a, there's a destabilization effect that happens through the proclamation of an alternative king or the messiah here and i think it is interesting coming back to what you said you know paul's three weeks doing paul's thing you know he's trying to persuade them from the scriptures that jesus is the messiah and then the accusation that emerges sort of out of this is that there's a destabilizing effect of the social order that's happening through this proclamation i mean it's it's nothing short of political if it's coming into, and this is where I was, what I was trying to say at the beginning of our conversation, that these communities are, uh, they're, they're clashing with Rome and, and not even so much intentionally. It's not as though it seems that Paul is ever trying to take down Rome or make a political stand that, that takes down the structures of the day. It's the very nature of doing that, which the spirit has inspired Paul to do in Acts, that the destabilizing effect happens 
almost naturally. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a thing called empire criticism where people, I mean, frankly, I think it's quite politicized myself. They, they, uh, they don't like Republicans. And so they, they see empire criticism everywhere in the New Testament. And it's against empire. And that's the Republicans. And that's Trump. And that's Bush. And that's, you know, okay, fair enough. Conservatives. Um, uh, and it did tone down when Obama became the president. That's, that was uh, proof. But um, there is in this message a destabilizing. Hmm. So you've got this exactly right. A destabilizing of order in society and a threat at some level. And the one thing, now look, you can read um, Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Emperors. Hmm. And it's a fun read because he's a pretty orderly writer and he tells some pretty good stories and a third of them are kind of probably made up or at least they're full of exaggeration. But the one thing the Roman emperors hated and despised and were worried about was a group of people that could cause a riot. When the Akloi or the Plethoi, the crowds or the masses um, gathered together you had the potential of a riot breaking out and riots can lead to more riots and fires. And the next thing you know, you have a total rebellion. All right. Spartacus, you know, is the, is the, isn't that the, the name of the great movie? This is, this is what they are able to label the early Christians on the basis of three weeks of sermons by the <laughs> apostle Paul in a synagogue, a community center, was drawing a lot of attention, and uh, they were worried about Paul's group destabilizing by proclaiming another emperor, and they appealed to Caesar. So the way this is an attempt to silence and shut down the movement, Hmm. and uh, it's it's interesting to me in in distinction from maybe the way we might conceptualize these types of politics or political moves in our day. I think that there is a strong impetus, at least in, in Western culture, at least where I live, uh, among people of my age category, that the answer is create a riot. That's how we cause change, is actually to like to do the protesting to make a riot. It seems here to be somewhat reversed for the Apostle Paul. Paul just goes to a city. He goes to the synagogue. That's his custom, Luke tells us. He tries to persuade, and it's through the persuasion and the preaching of the gospel, not a kind of antagonism but a just a general doing what Paul is called to do as a, a herald to the nations, uh, that it's out of that, that then the riots begin and the concern arises. Is that fair to say? Okay. But let, let me just say this, that, you know, this isn't the first time this happened to the apostle. Paul. Of course. No, no, no. You know, we've had, we've had several, four chapters of this stuff going on for Paul, yeah. you know, ever since, especially chapter 13. Uh, but so we got Paul, preaching the message. So so when this happened, this was not a surprise to the Apostle Paul. Hmm. So I want to say that okay. he knew when Got he it. preached this message that that's how people were going to respond, and he preached okay. it anyway, because sure. the implication of Jesus being the king is a way of saying that Caesar is not all he's cracked up to be, especially Nero. That's an easy criticism at this time. 
Uh, so I think that Jesus, I think that the Apostle Paul knew the political implications of what he was saying. He wasn't trying to rebel against Rome, but the rebellion at some level, the resistance and the dissidents against Rome were inevitable. Now that's if really helpful. You, if you take Christos seriously, you will end up being accused of being an anarchist. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, so Paul knows. So Paul knows that there are these types of implications. He's experienced it time and time again, city to city. And yep. yet it's the calling that compels him to continue on to do the things that he is doing. And he knows that this will put him in some sense on a collision course with Rome. And yeah. yet he continues to do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, when you say that Jesus is the Lord, I mean, let's just say you're working at a business, okay? And your boss says, I want you to take this person down. I want you to uh, destroy this person's character. I want you to say these things in public. And you say, I won't do it. And they say, you're my employee. I'm, I'm telling you to do this. And you say, Jesus is my Lord. Right there is resistance to the system, yes, to the empire, if you want to call it now. Of course, business world is not the empire, but it's connected to the worldly system. Sure. So I, I think that this is a profoundly dissident. It's a profoundly resistant message. And the accusation that they are anarchists, as I translate it, what is the what does the NIV have? Do you know? I do not know. Yeah, rebellious or something like that. I don't have it. Okay, no, it doesn't matter. Um, I think that that charge is inevitable. At Got some it. level, there's going to be a disturbance over Jesus, and Paul knew it, and he stuck his he knew the lion would open his mouth, and he stuck his head in it. That's really helpful. I want to cover two more things uh, as we think about Acts together. Let's think. So Paul is going city to city. He's preaching. He is he's doing this missionary activity. He's also he, it's not just a destabilization effect, though. Uh, he's also forming and creating. So it's not just a deconstruction or a destabilization, but there's the formation of alternative. Now I might sound very Hauerwasian here along with Roe, but there. There is a uh, the formation of alternative societies, alternative communities. Maybe they would have been perceived as associations where we do see economic redistribution. We do see needs being met. We do see Paul collecting for other communities. So that even in and of itself, I think, would would clash with the Roman way of life if your value system is being completely reconfigured as one that's a part of these ecclesias. How does that land for you? Oh, yeah, I, I, th I think you're totally right. Uh, calling the church an ecclesia right there is already a political statement. This is the gathering, the assembling of the voting male public. They are gathered together. This is a, a, a this is a political uh, implication. Okay, and they uh, are going to form now. In, in this text, you know, he says there was a mass of Greeks, Greek reverers. These are people who had been connected to the synagogue as Gentiles, and they really liked this stuff. So we're often, they're often called God-fearers. 
and first women, which means, and, and Paul, this is a typical Lucan style called a light toady, not a few, not a few. So in other words, there were a, a significant women in the community, first women. This is a this is a title of leading ladies, you know, in the community <laughs> who decide that this message is something they want to be connected to. And they're now meeting together, they're gathering, and it has become significant enough gathering. This is not six people gathered in an upper room in a fourth floor of of a tenement in Thessaloniki. This is this is an assembly on the first floor of a community and people know that there's some significant people attending this now. You know, there's they're standing outside and taking pictures with their cell phones so they can tell everybody that, you know, so-and-so has been going to this meeting. Um, that alternative community was going to embody a way of life that had so much challenge to so much of Rome. And the other thing, you talked about poverty. Um, Rome did not care about the poor. That There was no safety net in Rome. Roads had some for a while, but in most places, they did not care for their poor. They, you know, uh, it's like a little uh, baby lion being born in, in the jungle or in Africa on the safari, um, and uh, it's crippled. Hmm. You know, the mama bear, uh, the mama lion and the daddy lion, they just move on their way. If they can't keep up, too bad, you're gonna get eaten and torn apart. That's what happened to the poor. These early Christians cared about the poor, and yeah. they inherited this from the Jewish world and the synagogue. So they they attracted poor people because they they got what they needed. So, That's so great. I think it's a great community. So we see the establishment of communities that are not at all derivative of Rome, but yep. they're generative of God. That God is yes. doing this work of creating and generating these altars. So this is not a, a humanly concocted thing that we see happening in Acts, but it's through this type of persuasion about the Christos through this proclamation. There is a collision, but it's because God is generating something. God is creating and fashioning communities. I want to end our time uh, by talking about Paul's Roman citizenship. Uh, I might think of Acts 16 or Acts 22 or Acts 25. Paul is not afraid uh, to mention that he is a Roman citizen. Uh, it's pretty late in Acts 16 after the this uh, this whole interaction that Paul has. He finally drops that he has Roman citizenship. And we see it several times later, including his appeal to Caesar uh, towards the end of the book of Acts. But but talk to me about Paul's Roman citizenship. I think that's an interesting thing for us. Um, I know it has been for me to think about what's the relationship that I might have with my Canadian citizenship or your American citizenship. Paul clearly preaches Christ. Uh, he's a citizen uh, of you know, this alternative kingdom society, so to speak. And yet he's not afraid to utilize his Roman citizenship in moments where it advantages or it can be utilized. Can you talk to us about that? Well, yeah, I mean, you've kind of said all the, the you've hit all the major talking points about it is that he uses this when it is to his advantage. But, you know, in, in the book of Acts, late in the, in those trials in Caesarea Maritima, you know, the, the uh, Roman representative power says this man could have been set free had he not claimed to go to Caesar. He appeals to Caesar. 
which shows that Paul has status in the Jew in, in the Roman world as a Jew, which means he either got it by doing something, which is I think quite unlikely, but it's possible, or his father was a citizen. Hmm. And he could only have become a citizen as a Jewish man on the basis of having accomplished something of value to his community. So Paul, in a sense, probably grew up in a family that had a little bit of social significance among Jews and in the community. And so he grew up, let's just say this, that he grew up, I'm making this up, but I think it's reasonable. He grew up with a social conscience. He was aware of his status. You, you cannot not grow up this way. Sure. If, if you have status, you know, I've met people whose family is involved in politics, kids, they are aware of their status and of their yeah. potential power to pull strings and get people to do things for them. So Paul has a little bit of this in him and he uses it. Um, I think, you know, my general, uh, this is not something I think a lot about, but I, I think that in general, um, he he used it when he could, and it just showed that um, he wasn't he was a little bit reckless with this kind of category. Hmm. Um, I don't think he read the room accurately enough, or had enough <laughs> friends uh, in Caesarea Maritima to know where this case could go under the under the the last judge. Or the last sure. person to make the judgment. So um, I think it, I think in the end it hurt him, but it gave him probably plenty of opportunity and platform when he needed it. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of something uh, Jennings says in his uh, commentary on Acts, uh, which is he talks about the distinction between you know citizen disciple versus disciple citizen, and the order uh, matters. This is at least the point Jennings is making in his Acts commentary, which Paul is a, a disciple citizen, not a citizen disciple. And that it can be used uh, to a recognition of status and what one can do with that, but it's always subordinate to one's calling and discipleship to Jesus. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Jennings is connected to Roe is connected to Hauerwas, so his Acts commentary, which I really I really enjoyed reading. Um, I enjoyed reading too. Yeah, he's he's got some really. I mean, he he sounds just like. You know the Hauerwasian line is that Paul was a disciple citizen. I mean, it, he was a disciple follower of Jesus more than he was a citizen. But he used it, and according to at least one Roman authority, it was a mistake. Yeah. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, again, yeah. this is uh, Kingdom Roots, uh, a time to politic. We've been discussing uh, the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to the uh, to John of Patmos. We just finished talking about Acts, and soon we'll dip our feet into the letters of Paul. Thanks, Scott. I'll talk to you again soon.